What the If is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks to our Patreon members, patreon.com slash whattheif. Go there now and find out how you can become a member and get all kinds of cool rewards. And thank you for supporting our mission for science education and science fun. Welcome to What the If. place where everything goes right except when it doesn't on a day like today <laughs> on a day like today here we are in the uh, what the if worldwide virtual studios um where it's been nothing but technical uh, extravaganza technical nightmare total collapse um so we just rebooted the universe and everything is fine now and as far as we know it's been that way for eternity um, Matt Stanley is uh, away this week on assignment, and uh, we think that all of these problems are because he's fighting mightily in the space-time continuum to get things back to normal, and that uh, when suddenly you can record a podcast show without without everything breaking, um, he's he's solved it. So we're still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> With me is uh, in the studio, G- uh, Gabby Panicia, virologist from Rockefeller University. How are you? How are things in your, uh, are you experiencing the, uh, the Matt storm? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, Matt's probably in that, like, you know how every story has like the same, like three parts to its arc, like rebellion, ruin, resurrection. I think he's in the ruin <laughs> stage where like things aren't going right. So we're all experiencing the, the effects. Uh, and then he's going to have his triumphant uh, clinching of victory. And then everything's yeah. going to go back to normal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Gabby, it's so great to have you here. Um, and uh, you come with, uh, there was a story you said, I, I'm trying to think of how you described that. This is a fun one, I yeah. think you said. Or, uh, so tell us about our if, the if for this week. First of all, before I get, we get ahead of ourselves, see, without Matt here, again, time is, time is not necessarily linear here. So the format for the show may or may not be linear as you've come to expect it. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> what's an if somebody somebody just tuned in they don't know what's going on what's an if what are we about to do yeah every week we pick one thing to change about the universe as it is that's our what if our if for the week and we follow that out as far as it can possibly go usually wind up having something ridiculous happen to this new universe that we've wandered into um but you know, some science does fall out along the way. So it should be one part entertainment, one part education, one part destruction, I think. Is you Ooh, these things good. good. Yeah, those are good parts. Every one of those parts is good. Um, and so uh, this was a story that you, and I'd love, I love if you can tell us the story of how you came to this, came to find this story. It's kind of a fun tale of scientific perseverance in and of itself. <laughs> I don't know if it's perseverance as much as just an attempt to occupy myself. Scientific boredom, let's say. Um, So plenty of you guys in the audience who have uh, listened in for more than a few episodes have heard me talk about working in the BSL-3. It's sort of a higher containment facility that we have for working with certain viruses that we really, really, really don't want to get out. Um, And so to do that, I have to work in this like full spacesuit. You can only take certain things in or out and they have to be really, really rigorously like decontaminated. So it's not the kind of place where you can bring a book 
to like sit there <laughs> if you have a long experiment or an experiment with a long incubation. And so I'm doing one of these experiments where, you know, there's not that much media on my cells. There's not much liquid on them. So every 15 minutes, I have to rock the plate to make sure that, you know, the liquid goes back over the cells and the cells don't dry out. But that only takes about like 10 seconds. So what essentially happens is that for an hour, I'm just kind of stuck in the BSL-3, which is just a science room with no windows. And again, I'm in a full plastic spacesuit. So my mobility is not necessarily great. So it's not really like I can just pace around or something. But there is a computer in there. Unfortunately, it doesn't have like solitaire or pin. I would kill for that like <laughs> Microsoft pinball on that thing. Oh boy. Um, so instead, I try to be a good scientist and I read articles. So this one came up when I was browsing on science. Science is the name of the magazine, not like I just uh -huh. went into Google and searched science. Um, That's what and, I Yeah. <laughs> I want to know about science today. Um, <laughs> so it's actually a, a really interesting story because it sort of mirrors something that we do in the lab uh, with something that could potentially happen in nature. It's a bit of a contrived scenario, but it's really neat to see that it happened at all. And I think it kind mm. of paves the way for some really cool thought experiments, I think. Mm -hmm. Cool. Totally. So let's see. I'm going to read this. Now, I don't know if, if what I got is only a short version of what you said. It's very you small. Saw. Okay. It's very small. So, uh, yeah. So it's from Science, um, the, the journal Science, and the author is Sean Cummings. And uh, Sean writes, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, as I get ready to, to bring you some science. Let me sip my coffee. Mm. Science. Okay. There we go. Sean writes, think of it as a sort of superhero origin story for zebra, zebra fish. Mm. Getting zapped by electric eels can allow the zebrafish to acquire new DNA and new abilities, researchers reported yesterday in Peer J. What's Peer J? Is that it's a, a journal article? It? Uh, it's a yeah. journal like type magazine, basically. Right, right, right. Scientists working, quote, I'll continue my quote here. Scientists working with genetic engineering sometimes use electricity to open temporary holes in cell membranes to allow foreign DNA to enter. To find out whether a version of this phenomenon can happen in nature, the team put electric eels and larvae from zebrafish into a tank together, along with free-floating genes that code for a green fluorescent protein. After a day swimming amid the eel's electric shocks, hmm, what a wonderful day. Honey, down at the pool today, it was like a little extra, a little extra zap. After a day of swimming amid the eel's electric shocks, some larvae started to glow green. Oh my God, this has got Marvel comics written all over it. New, sci uh, new scientist reports uh, indicating their cells had taken in and begun to express the foreign genes. The newly acquired DNA degraded quickly. The larvae only grow only glowed. <laughs> it's like quickly. The larvae only glowed for about a week. <laughs> I mean, if I went power. swimming, <laughs> I went swimming, and I came home and I was glowing green for a week, I wouldn't call that only shortly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but I'm glad these guys are on on task. But it caused the scientists to wonder: Could a wild animal? acquire genes in this way and pass them on to its offspring. Oh, wow. That's heavy. 
Researchers aren't yet sure, but if so, they say it could introduce new mutations that influence the species' evolution. New mutations. So um, this gave you an idea for an if. So how, how would you, would you give us some context for, uh, before we announce the if? What, uh, what, what were you thinking? Uh, here, here's a fun thing for our listeners, too. What's the process? You go through the scientific uh, slash journalistic slash comedic process you go through. <laughs> yeah. Read I the mean, article. To be perfectly what? honest, it's usually not very scientific uh, when I'm thinking <laughs> about these. I think it's just cool to imagine like, yeah, what if this is happening all the time and has happened throughout our entire evolution, which it honestly oh, may yeah. have stuff like this horizontal gene transfer. Um, right. I like the idea of like, you know, you're in a communal swimming pool and you know, one of the lights shorts out, y'all get a little bit zapped, and then everything that's in that water is like now like any free floating DNA, which let's be honest, community Hello. pool probably <laughs> uh is now something you've uptaken, or like again, you get zapped by an electric eel wow. in a body of water and you uptake a bunch of free floating DNA. So kind of imagining in a very frivolous sense what it would be like to sort of constantly be taking up all of these random pieces of DNA and expressing them uh, in your own body after just kind of mild, like, shocks, like, you know, static shock or something like that. Amazing. Oh, you don't do me a favor and tilt your mic a little bit more towards you there so we get a little more, a little more Gabby. Excellent. So now we're going to announce... Oh, so, so, so the if... The next thing we have to do is when we come up with an idea for an if, right? A, th a thought experiment we're going to run... We then have to create a sentence, like a spell, almost an incantation, where we get to say, you know, what the if. Boom. So, how would you phrase this so that we can then say that with the fanfare and go into this special configuration of the safe, the, sa the sandbox, universal sandbox that we create for if, ifing? Yeah, I am going to say, what if every electric shock gave you new genes? Oh, <laughs> just really okay. dial it up to 11. Yes, to 11. And now we're going, to, again, because Matt's not here, so I feel like I, I apologize. All the burdens on you today. You're both pilot and, uh, um, you know, crew, crew uh, crewmate. Um, what do the passengers need to do right now to prepare for our takeoff into the IF? Yeah. Uh, so I guess you probably want to make sure you're well grounded. Isn't that a thing with electricity? Yeah. Uh, if yeah. you don't want any new genes, I would suggest a full, perhaps like rubber suit, something that really is not going to get you too zapped. Uh, that yeah. might be a good precaution to take uh, for the upcoming if. All right. As we ask, uh, what the if? Electric zaps. Gave you new jeans. Sounds like a new slogan for the Levi's Corporation. <laughs> Every zap gives you new jeans. So, <clears throat> uh, is it important that the zaps, I mean, for instance, in this case with the zebrafish, um, they were getting zapped by electric eels. Was it Anything to do with the eels themselves? I don't think so, right? It's not there were no there was no genetic material coming from the eels. It was just the electrical zap that 
or, yes. or I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially what's happening here is a process that we call electroporation. So this is something that we use in the lab, just not with eels. Essentially, oh, we'll say that again, electro, electro, electroporation, essentially electro. using electricity to poke tiny holes in things, make pores. And oh. so what it does is you can poke essentially these tiny, tiny, tiny little holes in the membrane of a cell. And if you have the cell suspended in, you know, liquid with DNA mixed around in there, when you poke the holes in, DNA can get it. And so then that's your way to sort of get the cell to express the DNA that you put in. And so this is essentially sort of a nat, like they're kind of made a natural version of this process. Normally what I do is, you know, I have a flask of cells. I use an enzyme to lift all of the cells off the bottom of the flask and oh. resuspend them to a certain number of cells. And I put them in these little cuvettes. Imagine like a tiny little uh, square-sided tube, except two of the sides, one across from the other, are metal. And so you slot that into a machine uh, such that like those metal parts of the cuvette touch metal parts of the machine, and it pumps an electric current through it. Let me see that. Describe that again, that machine. So, The machine or the cuvette? Well, what was it with the two the two things on either side of each other? Yeah. So imagine just like a square sided tube. So it's just tall, uh-huh. and then you know, hole at the top so I can add cells in. I add cells to it, right? Yeah. And two of the sides, and they're opposite from each other, have metal sides. Uh-huh. So those metal sides get put against the metal plates of the machine. So it's metal on metal contact. And then the machine sends an electrical current through it. Ah. And that pokes the holes through the cells that are in that cuvette, that tube. And do they get, does it get holes because there's holes in either side of the tube? Or it's just, just the electricity it, it, does it? It's that? the electricity. Yeah. The you, electricity you do it that knocks. way because yeah. you can actually run a, like a current through it, if I am understanding electricity correctly. Like if you did had them at right angles from each other, it would just be kind of weird. Um you wouldn't really get through the whole cuvette. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so it just has to do with like running a current through it. Um, right. And it's one of these processes that like there's no magic recipe. Everybody kind of has to, everybody optimizes stuff, but the chances are if you use a different cell or a different amount of cells or a different cuvette, you're going to have to just play around with the conditions. How many times you zap it uh, when it's in there, how fast, how much time between the zaps. It's all just sort of this, you kind of science it out, but it's just sort of trial and error. Um, right. But that's a method that we use in the lab. So, for example, when I want to make virus, I'm not adding DNA. I'm adding RNA of the virus. I put it in with those cells. So it's floating in and amongst all of the cells. But normally just the RNA can't get anywhere because it doesn't have any of, you know, the virus entry proteins. So what happens is that I electroporate the cells. They get all these holes the RNA kind of diffuses through into those cells, and then they start making virus for me. Right. Got it. Got it. Okay. Right. So inside the tube are cells, and each of those cells has a uh, somewhat solid membrane around it that protects it and keeps everything inside. And then you got something on the outside of that, say RNA of a virus, that you want to get inside that cell one way to do it, you zap it. And so you don't have any control. I mean, it sounds like it doesn't matter where the holes are 
but just some certain number of holes open up. It, basically, you're in zapping it. It uh, yeah, you're not disturbs you're never, the surface. Yeah. yeah, you never try to like. You're never optimizing like, oh, I want one hole or I want three holes. You're optimizing what gets the DNA in but doesn't kill Get every in. cell in there. So yeah. it's it's one of these things where it's like it's not. You don't really use that as a criteria. You're only really seeing does DNA get in and do the cells not die. Um, But I think it also comes up in the paper, so I should mention it here that, you know, just because you've got DNA into a thing doesn't mean it's going to stay around forever. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we think about DNA in our cells, in the nuclei of our cells, that, you know, that sticks around for our entire lives. But Mm -hmm. DNA that you add via electroporation works a little bit differently, Uh, namely that it's going to degrade. It doesn't have all of the associated, you know, your DNA in your cells has all of these proteins bound to it. There's a lot of stuff that takes care of it and that kind of keeps Uh. it from being degraded. But transient DNA, we sometimes call it naked DNA. Um, It it sort of gets, you know, degraded kind of quick. The cell's like, oh, this isn't supposed to be here. Uh, And as the cell, you know, patches the holes in its membrane, even though it follows the instructions of the DNA and will make stuff, it doesn't always last that long. It's that same idea behind like mRNA vaccines that you get the RNA of the virus and it's there long enough for your body to make the virus proteins that are needed to trigger the immune response and get your body to recognize, you know, these are the things that are going to help us fight this virus if we see it. But you're not permanently expressing the RNA of that virus. It's there for just a tiny little bit and then it's gone. Same thing with DNA. Yeah, so interesting. It's almost like if if the cops, <clears throat> the, the cells, cops, you know, they look some, they, they kind of look at it, they're like watching a huge swarm of people, a very, very busy little town. And there aren't particular ID badges that people wear that are just familiar. Like, oh yeah, I've seen you before. Mm-hmm. Or I, I totally recognize your you yeah I, you're good and then there's other people they're just like i got my eye on you it's like i haven't you. seen you around these parts <laughs> that's right who are you yeah yeah and what was that zapping going on <laughs> yeah uh so yeah we, we put it uh <laughs> we put an alert out for anybody seen since the zapping so um they go in there right so there's no guarantee you you've now inserted so what you're doing is what you insert rna uh, which is basically the instructions to manufacture a virus. Is that right? Or piece yeah, of the instructions? Or, or DNA. I can get cells to sort of translate express DNA. something. We, we tend to use RNA or DNA a little bit differently depending on if we're just, if we're making virus, we use RNA just because right. most viruses are, most viruses we're working with are RNA-based viruses versus DNA-based viruses. Other right. things when we're trying to get it to express a gene that's maybe, you know, if we're working in human cells and we're trying to get it to express another human gene or a mouse gene or something like that, then we could just use DNA. It's kind of potato-potato. There's specific contexts where we use one versus the other, but it's not really too relevant to what, you know, we're talking about now. Right. So now, when the, when the eels <clears throat> introduce this electrical zap into the water, the zebrafish, the cells inside the zebrafish, or, or well, the cells inside the zebrafish larvae, is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Um, so the eggs, or I guess... Um, the infant form of the zebrafish, uh, there were cells in there. It started glowing green. But what was that about? Yeah. So the thing is that, you know, the DNA that they had in the environment was encoded for a green fluorescent protein, a protein that would glow green. We use those proteins a lot in the lab 
because they're very easy reporters. They're really good diagnostics. So the scientists, the scientists put that in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the water. It's not like they see. just got shocked yeah. and then they started glowing. It's right. they put right. that in the right. water to see. And so, for example, I mentioned that you know electroporation is a trial of process of you know it's it's a process of trial and error. If you want to see how effective it is, you can add varying amounts of green fluorescent protein or the same amount of, of you know, GFP DNA and trial your electroporation conditions and then just look at how many cells survived and how many of them are green. That's a pretty easy way that we do mm. things. We use it a lot as just like a, a very quick check or like a control um, because it doesn't do anything other than make stuff green. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's it's it winds up being just kind of like a, a good like yes or no. And in this case, the yes or no is did it work? Did the DNA get in? Yeah, they're glowing. Um, but it also is just it's kind of cool. It's cool. Totally, totally. So, um, uh, what other things might you want to? What other um, traits or whatever? You what, what other things might you want to give? So say you want to move beyond this cosmetic change, right? What other things would you like to do? Yeah, so zebrafish, especially zebrafish larvae. The if you're wondering, like everyone about why people are why are they studying fish? Why are they using these zebrafish? Yeah. Their embryos are clear. Their larvae are clear, which makes oh. them really, really, really useful to study for like embryo like embryonic development because uh-huh. you can see the whole process extremely clearly. And if you add these fluorescent proteins, it's very easy to visualize things change over time. And, you know, if you have any of these host genes that are linked to certain fluorescent proteins, you can literally see them get, like, activated. Uh, And, like, you know, again, if you've made this, like, glowing fusion protein, you'll see, like, that section of the zebrafish glow, you know, green when that gene kicks on. In development. So yeah. they're a really, really useful tool. And so one of the things you might want to express in those zebrafish is aberrant versions of developmental proteins so that you can see, well, what happens um, over the course of development. Also, plenty of people make, you know, transgenic zebrafish. So that's essentially they have a gene from another organism. Again, that could just be the GFP, that green fluorescent protein. I think that's originally derived from jellyfish. Or it can be, you know, they want to express uh, to make some sort of like CRISPR knockout zebrafish, uh, you know, knocking out a gene that's in the zebrafish. Um, So there's all sorts of things that you can throw in there depending on what your biological question is that you're asking. Uh, The first thing I'm thinking about, though, is, is that, you know, expressing a mutant version of something that the zebrafish may already have to see how that that mutant protein either does or doesn't work like the normal version of it. Interesting. And I, I was looking at, I was curious, what does a zebrafish look like? And I looked at it and I was like, oh, it's totally familiar. And it turns out it's like an incredibly common aquarium fish. Oh, right? yeah. It's kind of a just, it You've looks like seen... what, what, guppies, kind of like what I remember. Yeah, guppies. it's like a little silver guy with like blue stripes, uh, like purple stripes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fun uh, thing is that labs usually have like really. So I'd say straight, straight stripes that run horizontal along their body. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's yeah. fun is that like labs sometimes do have like lab specific strains of zebrafish that are like huh. really cool. Like there are adult ones that are also clear. I think apparently that they call like ghost Whoa. zebrafish. And I, I had a friend who worked in a zebrafish lab, and I was like, "Can 
can I just steal some? Like, they just seem cool for an aquarium. Like, and of course, yeah. no. Um, but yeah, you know, technically all of those GFP zebra fish are exactly the same as you're seeing in the pet store, except they have a gene that makes them glow. Yeah, it's wild. That's wild. And I can imagine the value of a clear fish. It's like, well, thank you very much. Um, so what's something you, let's say now you've really, uh, I don't want to say yet mastered, but you've become very good at this. Uh, what was it called again? Electro? Electroporation. Electroporation. <laughs> and uh, what, what would you like to do? What's something that could become, that could change the world, as Bill Nye says? So do you mean in the, the electric eel sense or like what, what we normally use it for? Well, what would you like to, as a scientist, what do you dream of doing? So the thing is, is it's a very bread and butter technique. It's not something that like this changes the world of science. It's like, yeah, you got, well, I mean, when it, okay, when it was developed, yes. Because essentially the ability to put new genes into a thing is kind of, awesome and unprecedented mm. and extremely, extremely useful. Um, but now it, it's sort of a thing that we do every day. So there's nothing that I can do just using electroporation alone that's going to win me a Nobel Prize. Um, or at least not, you know, maybe there's three experiments I could do in exactly the right context that I don't know right now that involves <laughs> electroporation and thus would eventually lead me to a Nobel Prize. Sure. A million monkeys with a million typewriters and 100 million years will eventually write the works of Shakespeare. Sure. It's kind of one of those questions. And a chemistry set. Yeah. Yeah. And a chemistry set. Um, <laughs> but it, it, you know, like I said, it's been a very useful technique in biology. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, electric eels are making electric shocks for the purpose of catching prey or responding to threats. So it's neat that essentially the same principle is happening that cells are uh, getting holes poked in it. them just because much the same way as my cuvette filled with, you know, liquid media and cells when it's electrocuted opens up all those holes, an electric eel giving off an electric shock in the vicinity of other cells, i.e. the zebrafish lar larvae, pokes right. holes in them and allows free-floating DNA, in this case DNA that the researchers put in there, to get in. So... Right. That's sort Got of the it. neat twist that like, here's this lab technique that we've used and developed, but also you can kind of get that same phenomenon happening in nature just by virtue of the fact that we have electrical current generating animals that live in water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I understand, now I understand. Now I understand the whole thing, what they were saying about it. really the discovery is that this happens in nature. So it was known yeah. that you could do this somewhat sophisticated thing in the lab under these special conditions and it's like oh yeah it turns out by the way that happens so what does what's a huge you know what when you read this paper and you were like wow that's really crazy I'd, I'd love to run with that what is a big you know where does our if go like what what crazy places does this lead us to uh it, seems, yeah. it has something to do with evolution i'm guessing yeah so one of the things that's kind of interesting right is that you think of every organism only has their own genes right and, you know, they have genes in common with related organisms because they have a common ancestor. So, for example, we share a lot of genetic similarity with primates like chimpanzees because we're more closely related to a chimpanzee than we are to, say, a housefly. Um, so the interesting thing about what we're learning more and more as we study organisms at a genetic level is that sometimes we see stuff that doesn't 
really always match up. So for example, there's a lot of plant species that are what we call naturally transgenic because they contain DNA from a bacterial species that sometimes manages to accidentally do this gene transfer. And again, because we know that, we actually now exploit that bacteria to do gene transfers in plants um, because we are nothing if not extremely clever monkeys. Um, But what's cool about this is that, okay, sure, it's a little bit of like a the stars have to align, there has to be free-floating DNA, and that can be expressed by the organism that gets shocked. Um, And that organism that gets shocked doesn't die and has to uptake the DNA. Um, But at the same time, it's cool. So it's like, you know, it seems unlikely that that DNA would somehow end up in like the germline cells and do so stably in a way that gets passed on to its offspring. Mm -hmm. But the world of the biological is one of these things that sure, it's a one in a million chance, but there's billions of organisms out there. So although we don't know the prevalence of something like this in the natural world, it's fully possible that something like this may have already happened to some extent. There might not have been any consequence of it long term, but what if there was? Um, And it's one of these things where it's not like, oh, in the future, this is going to be happening. It's like this is something that may already be happening to some minor, very rare extent. So it's kind of an interesting study on the level of like, the more we learn about genetics and the more we learn about the genes of organisms around us, the more we learn that sometimes they transfer genes between each other, completely unrelated organisms, purely by these sort of stars aligning random biological processes. It's not like a handshake where two of them go, I'm going to pass you my genes now. It's the kind of randomness of an electric eel releases a shock that's near the embryo of this fish that happens to be able to uptake that DNA and that DNA happens to be able to get into the germline. And then when that fish grows up and it has babies, their babies have that DNA that it happened to randomly acquire from the... So it's these long chains of random things, but you never know how often they've actually happened in the grand scheme of things. Um, So the research is very... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the researchers are very clear that they don't really know how often this actually happens in the natural world, how relevant this is. But it still is kind of cool to think about. Um, And it's kind of neat to realize, you know, these events that enable more genetic flexibility than we thought originally are kind of possible. Whether or not they're consequential, that's different, but... Right, right. And so, and, and I see their their next challenge is, as they said, to um, make a change that lasts longer than a week, right? So is, is it after a week, the protective functions inside the cell suddenly decided, what's this, what's this green stuff doing here and kicked it out? It's actually that, so the protective functions on the cell will kick in faster than that, usually a couple of days. Mm. But there's sort of two layers, I think, most people know from basic biology, DNA, RNA, protein, that DNA is the blueprint, RNA is what gets made from DNA uh, and translated into protein. Same thing is happening when you put DNA into a cell. Um, That DNA gets transcribed to RNA, uh, which gets translated into protein. But the DNA is usually cracked down on pretty quick, and so is the RNA. But the protein can last for a week or longer, depending on how stable that specific protein is. 
Stable is, again, one of those terms where some proteins last longer because of their shape, because of their function, or because they're specifically, you know, targeted for degradation that can shorten their life cycle. I don't know what the mechanism is for GFP, but it does last about a week in everything that, you know, I've seen in the lab. Uh, so I think that's about mm -hmm. how long it takes for that protein to sort of get turned over in the cell. And they're, you know, when it's gone, there's no more RNA or DNA. So it's just gone. Right. So, uh, that's funny. I can hear Matt asking, maybe this is coming up through the timeline, but Matt <laughs> would say, so is there, a, is there a, can we suddenly make super strong zebrafish? Can the zebrafish suddenly take over their environment because there was this, some kind of change happened in their genes? Yeah, I mean, probably not. Literally like a Marvel superhero type story. Super yeah, probably fish. not <laughs> something immediately, right? Um, right? It's rare that like one gene gives you a super genetic advantage, especially like genes from another organism. So I haven't talked about this, but, you know, the thing about biology is even though that you can swap a gene from one organism to another, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work. It's like having two locks made by the same locksmith doesn't mean that they use the same key kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> just because they both do the same thing, they prevent you from opening a door doesn't mean that they're made the same way or manipulated the same way. Um, so just because a, a zebrafish can take up a gene that's floating in the environment that's, say, from a human who was in the water next to them that got shocked um, doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden this zebrafish is, is expressing human proteins and is going to become a super genius or grow thumbs. Um, it would be interesting if, you know, they got some kind of light-expressing gene, much like the one that they got here, like a GFP, and then you know, I think fish do practice sexual selection at some point. Like, so then it's like, oh, only the hot glowing ones are, you know, oh, getting right. mates or something like that. I don't know how common mm. it is for zebrafish, but um, I like the idea of essentially accidentally creating like undersea peacocks that are just so unimaginably like attractive to female zebrafish that now every zebrafish must be green fluorescent. I can totally see that. You know, it's like a fad. You know, it's like uh, a disco fish. Um, so <laughs> uh, I could also imagine doing, um, you know, they do these drone shows now where they send up like thousands of drones and they're all lit and they, they put on shows in the air. Like you make pictures in the air using these drones. I can imagine doing that with zebrafish somehow. You could sort of, you could be lighting them up and different things. And it's fine because after a week they go back to their, their yeah. normal uh, color. I could. I am thinking, and I'm like, I could give you an example maybe of like one way in which it could help. If yeah, it probably wouldn't help on the order of it just being transient, i.e. after a week it just degrades, probably wouldn't help too much. But say this is that one magic bullet fish where yeah. it gets this gene integrated fully into its germline and all of its children have this gene. Yeah. Uh, and so now you have this population of zebrafish that got this gene from the environment that are now super great. So imagine these zebrafish live near another species that's a little bit more, say, cold tolerant. So if the zebrafish got a version of one of those fish's proteins that's more cold tolerant, say those zebrafish might be better adapted, better able to withstand the cold. I'm pretty sure zebrafish are tropical, but climate change is kind of messing things up. 
So, you know, if that could potentially expand the range of that sort of subset of zebrafish, maybe they can travel to places that are colder and set up populations there, which anytime a species gets its new ecological niche, its new area, that always is like very interesting from a population standpoint because they can start becoming Mm. very different from the original population. Um, Or warmer, wouldn't it? Like with climate change, if you could make them tolerate a warmer environment, they might survive. Same thing, same thing. Say there's another fish in the environment that expresses a version of a protein that handles the heat better or a protein that's like particularly good at maybe like dealing with the, so one, eh, I'm not going to get into it. I realized the example I was going to use was probably going to lead me to a more complicated explanation. Yeah, let's yeah. just say a little bit more heat tolerant. Uh, then those fish would probably have an advantage. And eventually there could either become two species, two subspecies of these zebrafish, one that's a little bit more heat tolerant, one that's not, or the ones that aren't heat tolerant could just be completely outcompeted by the ones that are. And so eventually you get sort of extinction of the old version while the new version that's more heat tolerant survives and thrives. Right, right. Which may have been why you could say, right, that there might be a whole species out there that, as you say, survived some sort of thing um, or is alive now because way back in their past, they got zapped by eels and it gave them some uh, capability that they didn't have before. We would never know because there would be no record of that uh, as far as we know. the zapping. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't know if they got zapped by eels, but what's kind of nice is, you know, gen- geneticists are a truly fascinating breed of scientists to me because they are one part big data, one part biology, one part like math. Um, Mm. So I do think they have ways to tell if something came from a different organism. There's something to do with like a mutational clock. It's a little above my head because it's not really my area of expertise, but essentially they do have the ability sometimes to tell if a gene came from and or like, you know, that organism or a different one based on, you know, this doesn't look, this doesn't. They can trace the family tree. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. And also too, if it, if a, if a fish has like two copies of the same gene, uh-huh. like if this is another, if there's two species of fish, right, they're probably not going to be too, too distantly related. So if the zebra fish has its one version of the gene, that's like, eh, heat tolerant and then it has this other fish's version of the gene that's super heat tolerant, the geneticists are going to be able to look at these two and be like, this doesn't look like a normal divergence. This gene actually looks closer to, you know, this heat tolerant gene looks closer to the heat tolerant gene from this fish and they can compare. So yeah, it might happen millions of years ago, but you know, I give credit to the geneticists. They're, they're pretty good at like tracking this down. I think in the future, I I know that they're going to track something down. They're going to be, wait a second. I think, a podcast was involved here. <laughs> oh no! <The laughs> Which traces yet again that in podcast throws <laughs> itself in the family tree. Um, so as we as we turn the corner here, um, science fiction writer Gabby gets a hold of this, and what happens? Yeah. So there's a part of me that loves this in the same way that I love like cyberpunk body modification. Because I like the idea of you just getting kind of modified by crap that's in the environment. (laughs) Um, Chances are it's probably not going to be too great for you, but I am imagining that it could be really funny. Um, So similarly, (laughs) I'm sure, you know, again, plenty of organisms have fluorescent proteins. 
the idea of taking a dive, getting zapped by some creature, or even by your own equipment, like your flashlight, you know, craps oh, out. Yeah. And then you come out of the depths and you're slightly glowing. And if this is commonplace, all your friends are like, bro, you got jellyfished. You're like, oh, crap, I got jellyfished. Um, similarly, you know, I suspect almost well, so you got jellyfish so what happened to you you just got jellyfish what oh now you glow because some jellyfish you know you we glow. got all of our fluorescent fluorescent proteins that we use now uh, we got a chunk of them from jellyfish yeah. um or you know it's somebody in their backyard who knows that this can work you know with a taser and a, a firefly uh really trying to see if they can make themselves you know fluoresce like that um I think it's giving me some really good mental images. But now just fluorescing is is pretty tame, right? So maybe that's the first page of the book. But yeah. that's, that literally was just something the scientists did for just so they could see that they were making an effect, right? But some much more... So this technology got much more advanced in the world of your science fiction story here. Uh, I like the taser and the firefly. People just went out. People just, they just started marketing, you know, well, we, we do have electrical devices. People just went crazy. There was a fad. Some some particular culture really got excited about going out and zapping the natural world, well, right? So they went on hikes. Thing, they went into swimming. Yeah. Wasn't that a thing also with us in general? When we got electricity, there was like all of these like yeah. sort of snake oil therapies that came out that were like, zap yourself for 10 minutes a day. It's good for the skin. <laughs> Um, they, they practically still say that. Now it's all about magnets, but yeah. Yeah, God. <laughs> um, but it turns out to be true, right? It, we've discovered that zapping does this. So in the science fiction story, the zapping works. So um, Yeah. Um, I mean, again, this is probably where my scientist brain is interfering with my science fiction brain because, you know, you want to say, oh, everybody's going to get superpowers. We're going to be able to just steal genes from like, tardigrades and like shoot ourselves into space and again the version of me that's the scientist is like even if you had those genes it probably wouldn't do anything that's um, pretty good right there <laughs> the tardigrades yes we want to become like tardigrades just tell people who what tardigrades are oh tardigrades there are these little algae bear creatures they are worth a google if you do not know what i'm talking about they are one of these, like, you know, we joke that, like, cockroaches will survive the nuclear apocalypse. Tardigrades will survive anything. That yeah. they can be, like, super irradiated. We've shot them in the space, in, the, like, the vacuum of space, and then they've survived. They can be, like, yeah. completely dehydrated and then, like, revived. They're weird little dudes. They, yeah. We just don't quite understand exactly why they work the way that they work. And a bunch of them were on a uh, spacecraft that the Israelis launched and it to the moon and it crashed right. and now we don't know what's going on I but do, they might I, just be sitting there Fro they'd be frozen right they'd just be sitting there but theoretically they could be awoken on potentially the yeah I think there was a thought that somebody they tried to simulate the, the forces of the crash because they loaded uh -huh. tardigrades into the head of a bullet and shot it and they didn't survive <laughs> Again, oh. every experiment with tardigrade sounds insane because they can survive a lot. Um, yeah. So we kind of keep testing them in like very, very weird ways that you would not yeah. test any other organism. You're not going to load a bunch of mice into the like 
into a, a bullet casing and fire it off of a roof, but you're going to do that for tardigrades because they might yeah. live. It's going on the list, by the way. Uh, uh, I think as longtime fans of the show uh, know, um, almost every if spawns another if. And so I am writing down what the if we were tardigrades. I think that's going to be a fascinating one. That's going to be a fascinating one. All right. So, uh, so help us uh, wrap this up by helping us understand. the. I'm really interested in how you, you read this thing and it jumped out at you. And so what was your feeling when you read this? And now that you've thought about it a lot more by sort of noodling around it with this thought experiment, do you have any different thoughts that you didn't have when you first read the story? Yeah, I mean, I still think it's it's really cool. What jumped out to me is just essentially the recreation of a lab phenomena in a more naturalistic setting, right. um, which I think is just, it's really cool. Um and so yeah, why is that cool? T t just yeah, what is? Because the stuff that we do in lab is in some ways very contrived. Um, ah. it's essentially the equivalent of being like, "Oh, hey, you know, we're human beings. We're very clever. We made a television, and then you go <laughs> out into the jungles of the Amazon and you find out that when." these two animals are close together under the full moon, they actually perfectly recreate a Samsung television. Yeah. Like, it, it's the sort of, like, stars-aligned nature of, like, oh, yeah, I mean, well, given this metaphor, it's going to not sound like what I'm going to say is going to make any sense, but, like, yeah, when seeing this experiment, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I guess that is possible that, you know, an electric eel could do this. Um, it could reasonably kind of be like this thing that we do in the lab but it's also not something that you think of every day um so it was just kind of one of these like far out experiments that was also a cool parallel to like you know the hardcore science that we do nowadays um and i think it had a cool evolutionary tie-in i think it tells us something it was reaching far far afield it um, tells us something about astrobiology too, right? It tells us not only we've discovered evolution can do this, that these these situations, these special situations we had created in the lab, also can occur in nature, and not only on Earth but anywhere. So, in other words, just a reminder: like on Titan, there you know who knows if there are creatures, you know, one one yet another way things might evolve on Titan or, or maybe Enceladus or some other moon of our solar system that has water, if there were, there have to be living creatures first, but there is all kinds of crazy electrical stuff yeah. <laughs> going on, well, as well as radiation and other things. Yeah. And I think, too, like a thing that I'm always trying to express as a scientist is that the natural world is so much weirder than mm -hmm. you could mm -hmm. ever imagine. That. Mm -hmm. You know, you're taught in biology, this is the way that it works. This is exactly how it is. And then you go off and you get a college degree in biology and then a PhD. And the entire time that you're there, it's, oh, actually, everything you thought was kind of like not exactly 100% right. And really, it's just like way more complicated than you were originally taught. So spend some time unlearning that, completely altering the paradigm of the way that you think about genetics, about biology. Um, and so this was kind of one of these things that, like, you know, the realization that, you know, an organism's genes are not necessarily always their own, that there have been these jumps and transfers sometimes throughout the history and the, the tree of life is really cool. 
And even if they're rare, even if they're transient, it's this like flexibility of your genes, the flexibility of your cellular environment that is really, really cool to me. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because because I'm not because I don't like smelly wet things, as I've said often. I, I have <laughs> always been afraid of biology, at least when I was in school, and um, so I, you know, I, I look at the world through the eye of cosmology and astronomy and physics and things like that. And so, just like certainly, if you follow cosmology or astronomy, you learn that every day there's some incredibly weird thing that no one even imagined. Right? There are plenty of things that happen that Einstein said would never. Well, that could never actually be. And then it turned out to be true. You know? mm-hmm. um, and or other strange things like it turned out that we that there are asteroids found on Earth that we can now say definitively came from Mars. So pieces of Mars, you know, got hit by an asteroid hit Mars, threw up a bunch of stuff in the air. It came up and landed here. And, and if there had been any living thing, if there were tardigrades on Mars who got a ride on some asteroid and came to Earth, you know, and wound up, could be we're all Martians. That's a long stretch, a hypothetical, but but the weirdness of things. So the weirdness of life is our metaphor for today. Oh, yeah. It's not a bad way to, st- well, I feel like we're still starting the new year. We're still getting our sea legs here. In also for a, an episode where everything technologically was weird for us, I think that that's a good, it's an appropriate yeah, it's note true. to end on. That's true. It's true. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, Thank you all for listening, and uh, thank you, as always, uh, to first of all, to you, our, our listeners, no matter who you are, uh, if you, especially if you are a first-time listener, if you enjoy the show, that's wonderful. Um, one thing I don't say often, I think it's sort of obvious, but if you, I'll just put it out there, maybe I should say more often, subscribe to the show. If you, if you just suddenly discovered us on some podcast app, or somebody recommended you, or you heard about us through Twitter, or Instagram, or X, excuse me, um, <laughs> My prediction is by the end of 2024, we'll still be saying Twitter or X, that thing. You know, the name Twitter will survive through 2024 oh, yeah. at least. Um, but uh, but thank you for listening. And yeah, subscribe and uh, leave us a review. You know, um, I've noticed it's funny because people sort of stopped. The ecosystem got very diverse. So now um, podcasts appear everywhere. And I know people are listening to us on Spotify. Hello. People are listening to us on Podchaser. Hello. People are listening to us, of course, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, the granddaddy of them all. And wherever you're listening to us, uh, we may or may not have reviews. You know, so we, we may only have one or two reviews there. Um, so you may be one of the early listeners on your service. So we'd love for other people who listen to the same podcast app you do or website or whatever to uh, know about what the if, if you enjoyed it. So go ahead and leave, leave us a review. And if you do leave us a review, let us know. Email us. Tell us about it. Feedback at whattheif.com or just go to our website and uh, hit contact. And uh, shoot us a note. Let us know. Also, if you have any ideas, we love to run with listener-provided content. Um, if you have a strange if you'd love for us to run with, we will run with it. We will not run away. We will run towards it <laughs> like, like first responders. Um, so let us know what's good for you. And above all, huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who... Uh, are part of our membership program, and they get a special um, bonus uh, after-show discussion that we call Beyond the If, um, a little extended episode only for our Patreon supporters. So go to patreon.com slash if and find out what that's all about. And if you are a Patreon supporter, we thank you enormously. Gabby, do you have anything you want to plug? Anything in the world coming up you want to let people know about? Uh, not necessarily a plug, but, you know, uh, 
SARS-2 infections are kind of creeping up again. Uh, basically, everything is a descendant strain of Omicron now, and it's pretty good about being more infectious and more immune-invasive. Uh, so, you know, it's the winter. We're all jammed in inside with each other. Get your booster shot if you can. Uh, protect yourself also. just It just sucks to be sick. Uh, so... And there's still immune compromised people among us. Like you know, for them getting sick at all with anything is a really difficult time. So do yeah. your part, get your booster shot, and test. You know, I noticed that I must say because I have a couple of friends who are really like vigilant. So they always ask me to test before, or even somebody I work with. They're like before we meet for work, you know, which maybe once a week or whatever. If you could just test before you come over and just make sure. Actually, that's really good. Like I, I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be doing it otherwise, and. Uh, once you do and you get in the habit, it's not cheap to have a lot of tests in your house. Not too bad, but it's sort of, you know, it's not nothing. Um, but I would say before you go to events of any kind, if you can test, then you just know yourself whether you're better or not. And, uh, and you can tell the people you're fine. That's always good. So um, thank you for listening. We, uh, I'm not sure our, our schedule is a little funky coming up, so we may have some AI episodes coming up or we're maybe... Uh, some encore episodes as we talk about. So if you hear one of those, don't be alarmed. Um, but uh, we're, we're, there's a lot of stuff going on in the space-time continuum right now, but I believe we'll be back next week. Was it next week? I'm not sure. I will let you know. But uh, we, uh, we do have some very exciting shows coming up. I know Matt and Gabby will be back together again. I know it. I feel one of these it. Years. One of these it's years. happening. It's a, what the if everybody was together at the same time <laughs> in the safe same universe it would be incredible it would be like eels zapping us uh gabby would you lead us in uh, restoring the universe to some semblance of uh, stability yes so as we are in this new world in the backyard of somebody seeking to become some sort of dc villain we can't help but watch them put their hand in the kiddie pool right next to the alligator and throw that plugged-in toaster in. And we can't help but shout the name of the show. What? Thank you all for listening. Shout out to Matt somewhere in the space-time continuum, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>